Our message this morning is entitled, Except the Lord Build the House, as an extension of last week's message. You know that last week, the time that we had together was insufficient to draw everything that we wanted to from the 127th Psalm, and so we're continuing our thoughts on that passage of Scripture today, and this will be the conclusion to our recent series on the Christian home. It's interesting that we endeavored to present four messages to you on the Christian home, and this is our seventh message to you on the Christian home, and we'll observe that seven is the biblical number of completeness. I don't know if that's divinely inspired and providentially given, or it's just that your preacher is long-winded and doesn't know how to wrap things up on time. But we have enjoyed very much sharing with you thoughts about the Christian home. We pray that it's been a blessing to you, and I pray that it's been instructive to you and something that if you're one day to be married, if you are married, if you have children, if you're going to have children, if you have grandchildren, this is a a series that has been informative to you and something that will be a blessing in your life. We'll begin by reading Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. As we introduced this psalm to you last week, it's one that is a favorite psalm of mine as a dad, as a father, as a husband. We considered four points before we ran out of time and Put the message on hold until this week. Number one, from verse one, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. We learned that despite our best efforts, and believe me, raising a family, being a husband, being a wife, being a grandparent, it requires our best effort. But despite our best effort, we are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon the Lord for our house to be built, for our house to be maintained, and for the city, as it were, to be kept. And we observe from that that many times in Scripture, now there are some things that are God-only. Salvation is God-only. Sin was man-only. But there are many things in Scripture that are an effort that we make that God blesses. And so we made mention of, in the book of Proverbs, the hand of the diligent maketh rich, but at the same time the blessing of the Lord it makes rich. So There are many things in our lives that require our best effort, but then at the end of the day, we trust that God's grace abounds over all of our frailties and our inabilities, our shortcomings, and so we are dependent. The best of parents are dependent upon God's mercy and God's grace in raising their children. A passage that I thought about a lot this week, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. We do the best that we can as parents and as husbands and as wives, and at the end of the day, where we come up short, God's grace does abound. And you remember that. You remember that passage. If we're talking about marriage, if we're talking about child raising, if we're talking about being a disciple of Christ, if we're talking about salvation, 
Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And he giveth more grace. According to the book of John, he gives grace for grace. We are miracles of his grace, testimonies of his grace. Being a parent, if you're a person who pays attention and has any sort of sense, you know that it's a testimony of grace. Everybody knows how to parent until they have kids. And then suddenly you realize how much more difficult this infinitely is than anything that you've ever tried to do. And so we come to the conclusion of every day and we thank God for his grace. We depend upon it. He keeps us, if any of us are a success, as it were, in raising children. Sure, we might have had something to do with that. Certainly a person who foolishly raises a child has very little chances of raising a profitable, successful responsible adult. And we see that in our country today. But if we find ourselves being successful, we were still beggars at God's table in all of this. And so number one, we're dependent upon the Lord for success in our homes, no matter how we try, no matter what we do. Number two, verse two, it is vain for you to rise up early to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows. From that passage, we observe that Anxiety and worry is not healthy. It is not something that we need in our lives and in our homes, except the Lord build the house they labor in vain and that build it. That means that if we're doing what we can, God bless the rest. You can go to bed at night and sleep, not worrying about what's going to come tomorrow because you trust in Christ. And I just had this thought over and over this week as we talk about except the Lord build the house. Understand that that's the four consonant name of God in the Hebrew language in the New Testament. What is the word that they called the Lord Jesus so many times? Lord. And so, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain and build it. The Lord there is Christ. Christ builds our houses. And because of that, I trust in the Lord. Because I trust in the Lord, I can sleep at night. It's vain, pointless, to rise up early and stay up late and eat the bread of sorrows, for he giveth his beloved sleep. In other words, there is great peace in trust. There is great peace in trust. Memorize that statement. We sang the hymn this morning in our song service, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." The reason it's sweet to trust in Jesus is because trusting in Christ brings us peace that passeth all understanding. There's peace that you experience in trusting Christ that supersedes your understanding of any situation. To use Brother Chambers as an example, I do that a lot. I hope that's okay. I didn't ever ask for permission. But a few years ago, we were at Big Spring Park and got a phone call that they had rushed him to the hospital, to Huntsville Hospital, because his heart was stopping and it would just stop for 15, 20 seconds and he would faint and then he would come back to again. Eulen's like, I don't have time for this. I've got work to do. And so he would just get back up and keep working. And literally, he would get back up and rest a minute and keep working. Well, as we got to the hospital, I was already at Big Spring Park, so I'm just right there. I was there when they brought him in. The look on his face was one of complete tranquility. Now, if I were in the hospital because my heart was not beating, I'd be panicking, and Rachel would be panicking. But he's like, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm at peace no matter what. Why did he have such peace in that moment? Because he trusted in Christ. He trusted in Christ. 
It's vain then to worry because we trust and trust gives us peace. The Lord keeps the house. The Lord builds the house. The Lord watches over us. And because of that, we can rest. If there's an anxious mama in the congregation, I want that verse to help you. Worrying doesn't fix anything. It doesn't solve anything. Trust in Christ, do your best, and leave the rest to Him. Number three, low children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. From that we learn that children are a blessing. Contrary to what the popular thought is in America today, children are not an inconvenience. Oh, they can be, and they many times are, but that's okay because they're the most blessed inconvenience you could ever have. They're a blessing to you. They're a blessing to me. They're the heritage of the Lord. By that we observe that he gives us a personal heritage, but at the same time he calls our children unto himself, and they are the heritage of the Lord. God continues his calls in the world through calling our children unto him, and so because of that they are a great blessing. And then lastly we came to verse 4, as arrows in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And that's where we'll spend most of our time again today. Now, by way of review on this verse, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Just to review, Solomon, or David to Solomon here, compares raising children, training children, to creating an arrow. And as you see, a song of degrees for Solomon. Remember that David is writing this psalm to his son. It's amazing then that Solomon would turn around and write the book of Proverbs from the perspective of a father to a son. And if there was ever a book in the Bible that taught a man how to straighten and equip the arrow to fly, it's the book of Proverbs. I've talked a lot about Proverbs lately. Have you noticed? What is it that I've told you to do with the book of Proverbs? Whatever the date is, Take that chapter of Proverbs and read that chapter. And if you forgot yesterday, start today. If you forget today and the next day and Tuesday, remember, Tuesday, open your book and read, depending on whatever day that day is, whatever day of the week, whatever date of the month, I should say, that that day is. And you have an expansion on how a man should raise his son. Solomon writes that entire book from the perspective of a father to a son. My son, he would say many times, in that, And he warns against things that are destructive, against foolishness. He warns against immorality. He warns against drunkenness, substance abuse. He warns against debt. He warns against so many things. And this is a man pouring his heart out to his son. That's the perspective of it. And so... We learn in this verse, David writing to Solomon, that children and the raising of children is like a man taking a stick, a sapling perhaps, and preparing that to be an arrow, preparing it to fly. I think if we look around us in the country today, we see a lot of saplings and we don't see a lot of arrows. And if that's the case... It's not God that has failed. Now, there are times when, as we said last week, that you can do the very best that you can do with a child, and because of their own nature, because we are all Adam multiplied, we are all sinners, they can grow up, they can do a 180 on everything you've ever taught them, and they can go prodigal. We have in the New Testament the parable of the prodigal son, and in that, 
which is a parable that teaches us about us. We learn about a man who's raised in a good environment, in a prosperous, believing environment, who leaves his father taking his inheritance, and he goes and he squanders away everything that his father had given him. And eventually, he comes to himself because of the afflictions that befell him, and he remembers his father's house, and he returns unto his father's house. One of the things that I pray every day is that my children don't go prodigal despite everything that they've been taught growing up. But even in that case, I have to understand, and this is something that I remind myself and I remind you, that little child of yours who sits on the pew and sings, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," who prays and who says amen, if they go astray, remember that they have a father that is above you. They have a parent who is above you When we have done all we can do with our children, God still is their father, and he will work in their lives. And we can rest in that. We have peace in that because, again, we trust, and trust generates peace. I have a beloved family member, one of my heroes growing up. He taught me to play guitar, and we spent spent many hours together as I was growing up. He was always one of my heroes. But... Early in his life, he had a bit of a calamity as his wife left him for another man, and it pushed him to substance abuse, and he'll be the first to tell you a story. It's not that I'm telling anybody anything that he wouldn't appreciate me saying, but for decades, for decades, he spent his life from woman to woman, from city to city, this type of drug, that type of drug, alcohol abuse, the man had such a troubled life. It's so sad how one terrible circumstance, one terrible event can start a problem in your life that derails you and sends you down a dark path. And that happened with him. Last year, and I may have shared this story with you before, he was hired a couple of years ago to cut the grass at the church where my dad pastors because they needed a landscaper, and they hired him. He does that for himself. They hired him to cut the grass. And as he was there cutting the grass, he felt compelled to pray. And so he would go in the building and kneel in front of the pulpit. He didn't know what to do. If you've never gone to church, how do you know what to do? And so he would go in in front of the pulpit, and he would pray. And he would pray, and he felt God moving in his life. And it wasn't six months after that. He mentioned it to Dad shortly thereafter. Dad said, well, you know, we meet on Sunday, and you can come pray. This is something that I want you to know. If you feel compelled to Christ, I don't want you to look at the things that you've done in your past and think there's no way I could ever have a place there. That's the type of person we need the most. He feels compelled to pray. He began coming to church, and three or four months later, my dad had the privilege of baptizing him. And he's been his right-hand man ever since. Anything that needs to be done there at the building, he's there. All through the week, they're painting the ceiling. They ripped all the tile down and painted the ceiling over the past month. That was a son who was prodigal for over 50 years. The man is nearly 60. I say prodigal for 30 years because he was an adult when it happened. Decades of living away from the house of God and away from Christ, and yet God moves Because that's God's son above him being his father's son. 
and he is now a part of a church. One thing that we want to emphasize as we talk about this is the gospel. This isn't moralism. We've tried to emphasize how wives submit as unto Christ, husbands love as Christ loved. This is gospel. It isn't merely self-help or a way to have a better home or a better life now. But our family relationships are to be outworkings of the gospel of Christ, even when it comes to a prodigal son. And I think if we admitted it, there have been times in all of our lives when we were prodigal, when we left, when we were disobedient. He compares the raising of children to equipping and preparing an arrow. As we shared with you, an arrow would be cut many times as a sapling. A knife would be driven down the sides of it to scrape off all, scrape off all the bark. It would be moistened with oil, and they would put it over a fire to straighten it. To The oil makes it where it's flexible. If you've ever seen an arrow in slow motion, you know that the arrow actually does this the entire time that it moves, which is an important part of the physics of an arrow. They would take stone and make the arrowhead. They would take feathers and they would put the feathers on the back of it and it would enable it to fly straight because if you just launch a stick from a bow, you know it's going to go any number of directions. It has to have the arrows to enable it to fly straight. And Solomon compares raising a child to the creation of an arrow. And the last thing that a man would do with that arrow is to put it on the bow, pull back the string, let go with the target in mind. And that's David's, I think I said Solomon, David's comparison with the raising of children. Our focus last week was on the subject of discipline, how a father and a mother need to discipline their children and we must correct our child we must discipline our child but at the same time this is to be done in the correct way we don't want to be angry with them there are times that I probably come across as angry with the children I make the joke that I can go Nick Saban on a teenage boy like that and the reason is there are some teenage boys that don't listen to reason, and you have to pretend like you're a fire-breathing dragon that their life will come to a miserable end in the next 30 seconds if they don't stop. And there are times when that happens, and you dads know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if you've ever had teenagers. But discipline is to be done in a way to teach. Now, we look at discipline in this country as punishment because we don't understand words. The word discipline and the word disciple sound the same, don't they? Why is that? Because they come from the same word. What does a disciple do? He learns. What then is discipline? Teaching. Discipline is teaching. It's instruction. It isn't punishment. You punish criminals. You chasten children. You punish criminals. You discipline children. Let's get that difference in our mind. Punishment, the root there is the same for punitive, which is a legal term. Chastening is what a father does to his children. I often like to think about the difference, if you want an example. Think about God and the way that he deals with people. He chastens every son whom he receiveth, according to the book of Hebrews, 
And yet we know there's a place of everlasting punishment for the wicked. What's the difference? You love a son, you chasten him to teach him, but God punishes a criminal in his prison, which is the lake of fire or hell. We find a difference in chastening and punishment. As we said last week, discipline takes many forms. You might ground them, it might hurt worse than a spanking, but I think everything's on the table that's reasonable and biblical and not cruel and abusive. A last word that I want to say about that that I neglected to last week before we move on to other ways that we train our children. As we think about discipline, I would encourage you to reserve discipline for sin issues. Reserve discipline for sin issues. The old statement, if a child spills a glass of milk, he doesn't need a spanking, he needs a towel. Accidents happen. Mistakes happen. If you haven't taught them not to do it and they do it, they don't know not to do it. And so simply saying, don't do that, will suffice. Oh, I didn't know that. What happens if they do it again? Then it's insubordination and then it's a discipline issue. But we reserve discipline for sin issues in my home. My dad tells the story about when they were children, they were raised by rough, rough men, and the women were even rougher. You had women that they'd come into church with a can of snuff, they'd put some snuff in their lip and sit there through church and not even carry a can to spit in, and tough women. You know, these women chase down a chicken in the yard, break its neck, pluck it, and throw it in the pot. My great-grandmother would tell the story about the day that she was married. Her husband picked her up, her fiancé, in a Model A Ford. She was plowing the field, and the way she tells it, in a potato sack dress. Of course, who knows if that happened. They had to go uphill in the snow both ways to school. But take her to get married. They get married. She comes home, and you know what they finish doing? Plowing the field, because that was life back in the Depression era. He was raised by rough people. Fall down and skin your knee, get a spanking. What sense does that make? Well, to them it made sense. That'll teach them not to get hurt. Well, no, you reserve. Half them kids ended up crazy, okay? You reserve the discipline for the sin issues, for the insubordination, for rebellion. God is very gracious to us, and the intention is not to hurt. The intention is to teach. Have the mindset that you're a teacher. As we move on... I want to consider first the straightening of the arrow to fly, the raising of children, the training of children from a societal standpoint, and then lastly from a spiritual standpoint. This is where we came to at the close of the message last week. A husband and a wife, a father and a mother, should epitomize for their children what it is to be a man or a woman. Men, your sons watch you to see what type of man you are. If you work hard, they know what it means to work hard. They're more inclined to work hard. If you value education, they will value education. If you value honor and integrity and righteousness, they will value honor and integrity and righteousness. If we are lazy and rude and chauvinistic and sorry and we lay around all day, I'm stereotypically wearing the wife beater t-shirt. Drinking Bud Light, watching TV, yelling at our wives. Our sons will think that's what it means to be a man. 
And that is not what it means to be a man. The man is to teach his children, especially his sons, how to work. Now, one thing that I do, we have newer cars, and I say newer, I mean less than 20 years old, and they don't break down a lot. But when they do, if I can fix it, I fix it. And when I fix it, I have them come sit out there and watch me. I would encourage you, husbands, fathers, have your children help you get their hands greasy fixing things. If they're fixing a, if you're fixing a dryer, that's not very hard. The dryer belt breaks. You dismantle it. You take off the cover and you take the old belt out. You put the new one on. You put the cover on. To a child, that looks like building a nuclear bomb. Involve them in it. What are you doing? You're teaching them how to fix a dryer? Yeah, but at the same time, you're teaching them that that's the man's role in the house to fix the things like that that break. Say, well, you're being stereotypical. You're seeming to imply that men and women have different roles. I hope it didn't take seven messages for that to click. Men and women have different roles. Now, I I confess to you that I'm, I'm married. My sweetheart, she can do construction and tile work and flooring and painting and demolition and that's kind of rare and I just kind of turn her loose at it and leave because it stresses me out to live in a construction zone. She's happiest in a construction zone. However, it is the man's primary responsibility to see about those things and I would encourage you to get your boys out there beside you, jack the car up when it needs brake pads and have them help you. Show them what it means to do the things that a man does. We want to train our boys as men to be men. Change the brakes. Change the oil. I teach my sons how to throw a punch. That may seem non-Christian. You know what? One day they might be a man. They might have a wife. And somebody might break into their house at 3 in the morning, and they may have to do something about it. Now, listen, Jesus encouraged suffering as a Christian. If someone comes to you and starts attacking you for your faith, he, the New Testament presents this idea that we voluntarily suffer in the name of Christ, rejoicing that we were found worthy to suffer, and they did never put up a resistance to that. And I have trouble with those teachings. But it's a whole other story when somebody comes after my wife and kids. And so when someone comes into your house at 3 in the morning, what are you going to do? You're going to defend your wife and children. I teach them how to throw punches. I teach them how to kick. You know, I love to see dads wrestling with their boys. We do that, and I think most dads let their kids win. I always had to get the the three-pin, like in wrestling, when you hold them down and get the three-pin and then let them up. We had some great times when they were toddlers and kindergartners wrestling. Micah still wrestles around the house. He'll come out of nowhere and hit me like a 30-pound bowling ball. Knocks me over, and I'm like, stop, okay? Stop. I'm not 30 anymore. That hurts. You hit me hard enough, I might not be able to get up for a couple of days because when you get near the next digit up, things hurt more and they last longer. And I don't even want, don't don't whine if you're 50 or 60. I know you're going to make fun of me, but it hurts. (laughs) Don't hit me, but it happens. We wrestle with them. We teach them what it means to be masculine. And by the way, I encourage them to lift weights. Sometimes 
because I want them to be physically fit, sometimes because they have energy out their ears. And if I can get them to go outside and run five laps around the backyard, they come in and they behave better. By the way, as we talk about discipline, one good way of dealing with discipline issues with some kids is by making them exercise because they may just have too much energy. You know, God didn't design us to sit at a desk for eight hours a day as kids. He didn't design us to sit at a desk for eight hours a day before sitting at an after-school event for another hour and a half before coming home and doing homework for two hours. That's the way the modern school system wants to look at things. That's not how God designed little boys. They have all that energy because they're designed that way. So send them outside to get dirty and filthy. Last week, the kids were filling up buckets with dust and pouring them on each other's heads. And I know parents that would have freaked out about that. Ah, you're getting dirty. No, not dirt. Dirt is unholy. Oh, no. Dump it on each other. Just don't get it in your eyes. I don't want to go to the ER today. That is a sentence we hear in our home a good bit. I don't want to go to the ER today. How many times? I said that yesterday. Somebody was doing flips off the porch. Flips off the porch. I don't want to go to the ER today. It's COVID season. I don't want to go to the ER in COVID season. As we think about that, one thing that I wanted to say to you is that real masculinity is not toxic. Now, you hear that all the time in today's wimpy little weenie society. Toxic masculinity. And there are some things that fall under toxic masculinity that you need to avoid. We don't need to be cat-calling women. Men, let me tell you, when a woman walks by, she's not an object of your lust. And we don't look at them that way. We don't talk about them that way. It is sinful. It is immoral. There are some things that fall under toxic, toxic masculinity that we ought not do because they're sin. But if you read the definitions of toxic masculinity... If you were to put all of that into practice, there's no telling what sort of person your son would become. I was reviewing over some of that in preparation of today's message, and one of the big things that falls under toxic masculinity in the words of the sociologists and the psychologists is homophobia. Oh, so if you think a man should be with a woman... And a man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, suddenly you're toxically masculine. Well, count me toxically masculine, buddy, because that's how God designed men and women. Period. End of story. It's the way nature is. It's the, word God, it's the way God's Word says. That's simply the case. Real masculinity isn't toxic. There was a chat in a Christian group on Facebook a couple of years ago. It almost got me kicked out of the group. I know when to stop. Some people don't. They get kicked out of groups. I tend to leave on my own terms. There was a bunch of women in that group having a conversation, and they were Christian women. They were all from a Reformed perspective, believe it or not. All having a conversation about how toxic masculinity is bad. They teach their boys this. They teach their boys that. And I'm like, first, you're embracing the terminology of the world Secondly, when an enemy military comes invading your city, you need a little bit of toxic masculinity. The way some of these people raise children, I'm, I'm surprised they could use a hammer, let alone a gun or a sword. There are times that men need to do things such as that. Remember that, sisters. Your, your little boys might grow up to be the warriors that defend this country. And that's a good thing. Did you know in Hebrews 11 there were people who by faith repelled invading militaries? 
By faith, David took a sling and five smooth stones and went to face a giant named Goliath and buried a stone in his forehead. Does that sound like toxic masculinity? That just sounds like being a man. We need men in this country. We need men in this country. If you can't tell, I am not a fan of this, choose my words carefully, soft society. We need men who have grit, who will clench their jaw and look an enemy in the eye and say, I am not afraid of you. We need to teach our sons to stand up to bullies. We need to teach our children to stand up for those who are afflicted. We need to teach our sons to stand up for what is right. And if they count that as toxically masculine, then you just put a big toxic sign on my forehead. I've about had it up to here with this secular nonsense that so permeates our society today. Along those lines, we need to teach our children, our sons, to teach their, treat their wives delicately, to love their wives, to respect them, to care for them, to treat them with kindness. Again, this isn't about being an abusive man or pushing your wife around, throwing your weight around. This is about being a man of God, a man of God, a man of God. All of our great heroes in this country, do you think George Washington was a wimp? Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, these men were willing to die. And by the way, they weren't 70-year-old men when that happened. You look up the average age of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and you'll see there are people around my age, some of them younger than me. There were some in their 20s. And yet those men, those brave men, forged this country willing to part with their lives, their treasure, their sacred honor for their convictions because they were men. All right. I could stomp around on that soapbox for the next four sermons. If you're raising sons, train them to be men. Train them to be men. Mothers, your daughters need an example of a godly woman in their life. And maybe a good sermon for an upcoming Sunday would be the subject of mentoring. Older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children. We need mentors. And you mothers, you're the mentor in the home for your daughters. And if you're a mother, your responsibility, according to Paul's writings to Timothy, is to teach your children in the Lord every single day of the week. To train your children. To teach them while your, your husband is away. It's our responsibility as we straighten out the arrow, as we think about this in a societal sense, to teach our children how to handle money. Scripture says as much about money as it says about salvation. It talks about hoarding it. It talks about wisely spending it. It talks about borrowing it. It warns against co-signing for others who borrow it. Scripture says a lot about money. In the Old Testament nation of Israel, they were not even allowed to charge their own brothers and sisters in Israel usury or interest. God's Word says a lot about money. It's our responsibility to teach them how to use money. How would you go about doing that? The way that we went about doing this in our home, Winslet children, as your children are, I'm sure, like expensive things. Dad, can I have this $400 airsoft gun? A what? Huh? 
A $400 airsoft gun, oh, it shoots 500 FPS. Are you trying to kill somebody with it? Well, they're only plastic. I don't care if they're plastic BBs. $400 airsoft gun? I think it might have been 300 but iPods and iPads and computers and phones and toys and cameras and drones and all of the stuff that a kid wants. There's a perfect opportunity when the kid asks for something like that to say, here's a way you can make money, then you can save the money, then you can buy that $400 toy that you want. And what we do when we do that is we train them how to earn money, how to save money, and how to spend money on the goals that they, the things that they want to purchase. Just as an observation, children take so much better care of things that they have to buy themselves, especially if it took them many hours of labor to accomplish it. It's amazing how things like that work. I notice that the weeks that I'm really tough about making the kids clean the house, the house doesn't get dirty as quickly. Why is that? Because if it gets dirty, who has to clean it? They have to clean it. If they have to clean it, they don't want to make the mess. And so it's like magical cleaning fairies suddenly come into the house and everything stays pristine and nothing gets out of place. There's a lesson in that. We teach them by making them do. We teach them by making them do. Chores are a great form of discipline. Everybody's getting on dad's nerves. Okay, everybody grab a broom and a mop. And nobody gets screens until the house gets taken care of. But we teach them through doing. We teach them to save, get them a bank account when they're old enough to get one. Introduce them to investing. I bore the teenage kids to death when I talk about that, and the response I usually get is, Dad, I know. But teach them how to, how to open a, an IRA and the sort of things they can invest in. Because they have to retire one day. There will be a day when they need the nest egg. Talk to them about things such as that. They need to know that they're not going to have the strength of a 20-year-old for the rest of their life. They're going to have to have a time when they need to live off of what they have provided. Teach them how to save. Teach them how to give. Because one of the things that we do with money is we give it to those who are without You can't read the book of Acts and not notice how the early church continually took care of those who were impoverished, those who had not. People sold excess houses and lands because there were people in the church who were impoverished. I've been reading lately about early church history. They had special funds that they would use to even buy the freedom of believing servants if they wanted to leave that servitude, if they had cruel masters. The early church was a very giving church. And how we learn to give many times is through the example of our parent giving. We teach them their civic duty like voting and paying taxes and praying for our leaders and respecting law enforcement and respecting our politicians. Now, let me say something that makes all of us, all of us in the crosshairs. I don't care who the person in office is, we are to give honor to whom honor is due. There are a lot of people in office who don't deserve honor, but the office does, and so we respect it. A lot of the rhetoric that we hear on social media, and I'm as guilty as anybody in talking to my friends, is simply unchristian. 
We're to be people of respect. Yes, sir, even if I disagree with you. How do we learn that? We learn it in the home. Why don't we see a lot of it today? Because it's not being taught. We teach them their civic duty. You say, how is that biblical? Read Romans chapter 13. Read Paul's writings to Titus to put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates. Romans 13 says to give tribute to whom tribute is due, honor to whom honor. Paul wrote to Timothy that we're to pray for those who have political power, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. We teach our children how to do this. We have an epidemic in this country of disrespect of law enforcement. When the police say stop, stop. If the police say you need to step outside, you step outside. You don't fight them. You don't argue with them. You do what they say. Why? Because they're God's minister to you for good. Romans 13. Those verses apply to us in America. Law enforcement says it, we, owe, we comply. And if there's an issue, we settle it in court because that's the legal means of dealing with it. Parents need to teach their children to respect authorities. Their teacher at school. My dad was a, early in his fatherhood the type of man who would often make jokes about how he would tell his teacher it's a free country and things such as that. And I went to school and I tried that. My dad said it's a free country. You want to talk about a trip to the principal's office real quick, tell your teacher it's a free country. Teach your kids to respect authority. Now, as we transition into the spiritual standpoint of this, and there's so much that you could say. This, this could be 15 sermons. We teach our children the scriptures, and we are to teach our children a respect for God's house. Now, to give you a caveat, only God can quicken a soul from death and trespasses and sins to life in Christ. No amount of teaching in the home can cause my child to be born again because I lack the ability to raise the dead. Remember that when a person is made a son of God, that is just like when they became your son, it's out of your hands as his biological father. It is all in the hands of his spiritual father, which is Christ. Our God in heaven does quicken whom he will. John chapter 5 explicitly states that. God quickens whom he will. As much as we might even wish we could, we cannot as parents quicken our children. Our inability in that stings. Sin and its effect hurts. Don't you wish that you could just quicken them immediately? But again, we have to remember that this is God's story with them. And so when His time, He quickens them to divine life. But what we are commanded to do and what we can do, we teach them the Scriptures, we teach them a respect for God's house, so that when He quickens them, number one, they are converted... And number two, they are equipped to serve him. Sonny Powell said it this way, he can't get his children born again, but he can train them scripture over and over in their life so that when God moves in his grace upon them, their mind is already full of the word that they can use. 
We share, are to share Scripture often in the home, not only reading aloud, but also in conversation. And men, I would encourage you to do this with your wives. We need to do a better job of praying in our homes. We pray over meals. We pray before bedtime. There have been times that Rachel and I had some serious thing that we just go into the room and we quietly pray. We need to break down the embarrassment layer. Don't you have the wall, the barrier around you where you just feel like it's uncomfortable and awkward to pray with your wife or your children and so you really want to but you don't? We're so reluctant in those cases, but Scripture would have us, especially as men, to lead in that way, and I need to do a better job of it. I think if we asked ourselves, we would all say that we need to do a better job of it. We share Scripture in the home, not only in reading, but in conversation, and you'll know that you've done this a lot when the Scriptures begin to come back at you when they protest. Have you been X, Y, Z? Dad, don't answer a matter before you hear it. It's folly unto you and shame. Don't quote that passage to me. Tell them it's based on statistics, honey. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a good portion of Scripture for reflection to us moms and dads. We learn the value and the importance of honoring God. This was written to Israel as they went into Canaan's land, and he's telling them how they'll be blessed in that land to go in and possess it. He tells them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets before thine eyes. Write them on the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee in that, in essence, it will be blessed with you. What that is encouraging is an atmosphere of Scripture in your home. You ladies, I give you an excuse to go to Hobby Lobby tomorrow and just buy every little knick-knack of Scripture and nail it to every square inch of your wall. We have all these shrines in the house from Hobby Lobby, and you have Scripture here and Scripture there, and that's okay. That's okay. Sister Colleen asked, would it be okay if I hung a Scripture up that I've got on a plaque in the lunchroom? I'm like, put it up. Put Scripture on the walls. Put them on the post. Put them everywhere you go so they're before your kids' eyes, so they know them. I can remember little dorky sayings my great-grandmother had on the walls of her house because she covered her walls with these weird little sayings, and I can remember all of them. Imagine if they were Scripture and your kids have those drilled into their mind. um, Moses here encourages that. As we think about encouraging our children in the Lord, there were a couple of statements that were spoken of John the Baptist in the book of Luke chapter 1 that I want to share with you. We have about six minutes remaining. In the book of Luke chapter 1, these words struck out to me, stuck out to me in my own personal reading this week. As the angel comes to Zacharias, John's father, and tells him that his aged, barren wife would be given children, this angel comes and 
begins to tell him what this boy will be in the nation of Israel. I want you to notice verse 16. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Now, I gave you the caveat that you and I can't quicken a dead soul. That's something that God does by his resurrecting power. The same power that raised Lazarus. The same power that raises all the dead at the end of time. But your little quickened child... John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 15. From his mother's womb. Understand that God reaches many of his children in the womb, in infancy, in their toddler years, in their kindergarten years. Look for the signs of grace in your child's life and foster that, nurture that, and take hope in it. John turns... Many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. As parents, let's borrow that language. We turn our children to the Lord our God. We often hear folks today talk about leading someone to Christ, and we understand that you can't lead a dead person anywhere because they're dead. But if that person has grace in their heart, you can lead them to the Lord. That's biblical. He turns them to the Lord their God. When Zacharias began to speak about John, he said that he would guide our feet to the way of peace. As parents, we can guide our children's feet to the way of peace. We teach them Scripture. We pray with them. We teach them the value of praying. We teach them the love that we should have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We train them to love God's house, to value the commands of His Word. Might I say this? Because churches are full of sinners, there are always times in your church's experience, in its existence, when things are going to be tempestuous. There will be issues for us to face as a church. There have been issues in the past for us to face as a church. We've had church trouble in the history, the, as of next week, 212-year history of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. And we will again have trouble. Might I encourage you parents to never, ever complain about your church in front of your children. Don't have roast pastor and broiled deacon for your Sunday afternoon lunch. Amen. The Hewlin says, Amen. Don't <laughs> roast the deacon. Because we're passionate about church, sometimes if things are not the way we want them to be, we have a tendency to get very harsh with our criticisms towards the church, and we ought to view it in such a sanctified light that we dare not speak ill of it. Now, we speak ill of heresies, and we speak ill of false teachers, but we need to understand that this is the Lord's bride. We need to be very careful before we criticize the Lord's bride. Let me tell you, if you come into my house and criticize my bride, I'm going to get irritated real quick. How dare us ever come into God's house and criticize His bride? One of the quickest ways for parents to turn their children against going to church is to complain about it. And as a church, let me just say to us that one of the quickest ways to run off the next generation is to be abusive to them. I want to be inclusive to our young people to make them feel welcome, to make them feel included, to let them know how important they are to the future of this church. We need our children in this church so that Flint River has another 212 years to look forward to. Every single one of you is important. 
One of the most heartbreaking things for me to learn as a pastor is that there are people sometimes who leave and you miss them and you love them and it never gets easier. It always hurts. There are times that you feel as if a knife has been planted right into the middle of your back. But you never want to criticize the church in front of your children, even when things are difficult, because we need each other. We need the fellowship of the saints. We teach our children to respect God's Word. We teach them to trust. They watch how you respond in those moments of affliction, and they learn what it means to be a good godly man and a good godly woman. There are so many things that I could say about that. Lastly, verse 5 Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. That means that having children is a blessing and it makes you happy. It's a good thing. Your quiver might hold more arrows or less arrows than my quiver. And at no time should Christians go around judging other Christians on how many children they feel like they can have and handle. But happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Let's end with this last statement. They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. That almost seems as if it would be out of place, doesn't it? They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. What does that mean? Gates in the Old Testament were a place of business, a place of transaction, a place when enemies would even approach unto to enter into the city, a city wherein is safety, outside where there might be enemies and danger. And so the gate is, number one, a place where business was transacted, court cases were held and to a place where enemies would try to find their way in. The arrows, as it were, the children of the mighty man will contend with his enemies in the gate as they are old, and he is old and gray. The thought that I had about that that I want to share with you, I see in my mind when I read that passage, the old patriarch of a family. And it's one of those events when the family all comes together, maybe... Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas. And the man and his wife, they stand back and they look. And they see their children. And they see their grandchildren. And they see their great-grandchildren and all the husbands and all the wives. The year that we moved here, Brother and Sister Hewlin invited us to Thanksgiving at their house. And we were alone, new in a city, away from our family with no contacts outside of the 20 people who went to church here, counting us. I think it was 20 with us. It's a small little group. And as I sat there in their living room, it was actually in the sunroom, and his grandchildren were in the floor, his great-grandchildren, his children and grandchildren were in the chairs. I went home and I told Rachel, when I am, and I believe at that time you were 70 or 69, When I am gray, when I'm a grandfather, I want to look out at my children and their children and their children. As they come together under my roof, I want to see them enjoying life in God's house. I want to see them contending with the enemies of Christ in the gate. I want to sit there beside you as we are old and gray And look at the generations that came after us and see that what we did made an impact in their life so that the children's children will be there honoring the Lord because of the difference that the church made and the Word of God made, the difference of Christ in the home.
If you read the obituary for Merle and Ann Carter, for Ann Carter this, this week, you know that it said of her and Merle that at the one of the latest family reunions that they had, and there are some 30 people that are descendants of them now, that she would often look at him and say, look what we did. Look what we did. I want to get there one day. I want to look at those who are my offspring, at their lives and God's moving in their lives, and I want to say, look at what God did through this household. May God bless us to raise up arrows as in the hands of a mighty man, to raise up children that would contend with the enemies in the gate so that we as old men and old women can rejoice in the work of God in our homes. Father, we come to you, Lord, in prayer, and we ask that as we've expressed your word in our heart, that you would bless every single home here to grow in your grace and in your knowledge. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that our children are the heritage of the Lord, that not only are they our heritage, but they're your heritage. We pray, Father, that you would bless us to raise men who are men and women who are women in this world that they would be masculine and feminine, that they would know that from the beginning God did make them male and female, and there is masculinity and femininity that is given by God, that it's a good thing when men are men and women are women. Father, we pray that we would raise all these men and women here in this church house, would raise their children in such a way that they would contend with your enemies in the gate. Father, we do the best that we can in so many moments, and we know, Lord, that even our best effort is faulted. So, Lord, we pray that you give more grace. We pray that you build the house. We pray that you keep the city. And as we come to the end of our days, Lord, we pray that we can look out at our children and their children and their children, and we can say how God has been good in our homes. And, Lord, as we come to the end of our days, we'll give you all the praise and the glory for the way that you have moved among your children in our households. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name.